Hello everyone, welcome back to EU Untangled. I'm happy to be back on the set with Harpa and Alex. Hello. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. I hear you're excited, guys, and I am too, because we're going to be talking today about a fundamental topic that I believe more often than not goes unnoticed, that is constitutions. Um, constitutions are, you know, the fundamental body of doctrines and practices that allow any society to organize itself. At least that's how I picture constitutions to be. Um, however, today we have a guest that will help us untangle what constitutions are what they mean, and whether there is such a thing as a constitution for Europe and whether that constitution should exist in the first place. Our guest today is Valgerdur Björk Palstotir, who is a second year PhD student in political science at the University of Iceland. She's joining us all the way from Reykjavik, where she's studying citizen participation in policymaking, and she's zooming into citizen engagement in constitutional reform in Iceland. Um, Lately, the Icelandic government has established several participatory and deliberative processes in an effort to change the constitution. The results of these democratic innovations have not yet been translated into actual changes to the constitutions, and today we're going to learn why. <laughs> Val, and that's what I'm going to call you for the rest of the pod to avoid butchering your name. Perfect. Welcome to EU Untangled. Thank you. Nice to be with you guys. It's a pleasure to have you here. So I guess the first question that pops into my mind is what the heck is a constitution? Oh my God, I think I'll flip this over to Harpa actually. Well, okay. So I think, I mean, there are several definitions of what a constitution is. Uh, the Urban Dictionary does define cons the US constitution as toilet paper, but that was just somebody being super cheeky and having a rough day. Um, typically, people say that a, a constitution is just a fundamental document that specifies what are the, the bodies, the institutions of government, how do they interconnect with each other and relate with each other, and how do they govern its subjects, so the people. Um, it's often theorized that, you know, or, or stated even, maybe it's even a fact, that this notion of the three branches of government comes from Aristotle. So, you know, the Greek philosopher and democracy was born in Greece. So fundamentally, what a constitution is, is just saying, you know, who is it that can make laws? Who is it that executes the laws? And who is it that can, you know, interpret the laws and make a judgment or a ruling if somebody is in breach of a fundamental law? So, yeah, essentially, it's just a cohesive document that outlines what the government is and how it functions. Um, and now, of course, some constitutions are maybe being updated and broadened um, to also include fundamental rights and social rights. And there is a wide variety in, in you know, the content and the length of constitution. So, of course, I had to do a bit of a deep dive and I found out that the longest constitution in the world is the Constitution of India which is 146,385 words. And then the Constitution of Monaco is 3,841 words. Is that the shortest constitution in the world? That's the shortest constitution in the world. So you can see um, there is sort of a, 
a bit of a debate going on between the, you know, how cohesive a constitution should be, how basic it should be, and then trying to cover everything that could be covered within a constitution. So they vary greatly. And oftentimes, like, you know, in the case of uh, the UK, there isn't exactly a single constitution. The Magna Carta is just, I, I don't even know what it is. I don't know if somebody knows what it is, but, you know, they take all shapes and sizes is what I'm trying to say um, about constitutions. Did that explain anything? <laughs> um, this does. And this is extremely interesting. And it, this makes me wonder, where does the Icelandic constitution stand? So you mentioned that the largest one is in India, the shortest one is in Monaco. I'm not sure that size actually matters Good in this question. case or in any other case. Um, but um, <laughs> yeah, what about the Icelandic constitution? So first of all, I would disagree with you that size does matter because <laughs> Jesus. It, at least in the case of a constitution because obviously the longer a constitution is it's probably going deeper and more detailed into principles Did you just that say they deeper? want to outline. I sh damn it okay uh moving on quickly yes i can tell you um that our three constitutions so i'm icelandic uh victor is a cheeky mexican alex is a german robot So the German constitution <laughs> is 146 articles, the Mexican one is 137 articles, and the Icelandic one is just 80 articles. Why do you know that? Because I don't have a social life. This is what I did on a Friday night. <laughs> <laughs> But again, the number of, of articles actually is uh, a case in the German constitution not very representative for the content because... Although it has 146 articles, actually there are in total over 200 articles because in some point they started to have like article 115A, B, yeah, C, D, E, and then yeah. and then and there are other articles which actually are empty. Mm. So there were articles that were just completely crossed out in the last 50 years and they were not replaced, but the number is still there. And again, I don't, yeah, I don't know. I don't think it's very, it's not very interesting to talk about the length or the number of articles. It's more the content. I think it's much more interesting. And also uh, you talked in the beginning a lot of like how the state is basically uh, defined. Uh, but for example, in the German constitution, actually the constitution starts with something completely different with the fundamental rights, you know? So the first the first article is actually uh, about the dignity of, of, of every human being and then, the, and then how the state should protect that and also fundamental rights like freedom of press freedom of speech blah 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 and then only in the later part it says actually oh germany is a and then you know parliament and we have a structure and you know that comes later so it, it, it really also depends on the on the thing on on every country's history how that kind of like rolls out and in the us for example the bill of rights are actually in the very last part of the constitution kind of like something which was amended quite later so um yeah This is the same in Iceland. Like the last amendment that we did was in 95, and that was the introduction of the human rights chapter. But a funny side note, I recently interviewed all the um, leaders of the political parties in Iceland to ask them about their views towards citizen participation, the constitutional process. And one of them said, the longer the human rights chapter is in a constitution, the worse. <laughs> 
It is. Like, yeah, this person was saying, like, look at the Soviet Union and all of these countries that cannot be labeled uh, or could not be labeled as democratic. They have this, you know, really extensive and comprehensive constitution. But what does that, you know, doesn't really mean anything. That's super interesting. I guess actions do speak louder than words. Exactly. And just basic laws, I guess. Yeah. I was going to say very proudly that the constitution of the United States of Mexico was in theory the first constitution in the world that introduced legal or social rights. Um, now I'm not so sure I'm proud of that if we had to spell them out so early. But more seriously, of course, we that is a big issue in Mexico, making sure that those rights are actually enforced and that citizens actually have access to them and that they are empowered. This leads me to a question, uh, Valgerdur. We know that these constitutions are intended to sort of guide, you know, society um, in any given country. We have said that constitutions take different shapes and sizes. In some cases, they are actually written, um, such as in the United States, which is a very famous constitution. In other cases, it might be a more loose set of laws, like in the United Kingdom, where there isn't actually a codified constitution as such. Um, what, in your opinion, are these constitutions for? What values do they reflect, if any? Well, that's really debatable. And it's like um, a huge debate in Iceland, actually, what the constitution should entail. Like, you know... The people that wrote the what is now kind of referred to as the new constitution, which was a draft of the Constitutional Council in Iceland in 2011, you know, they want to have it really, really broad. Whereas people that are kind of more conservative say, no, 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 it should be really basic. And, you know, all the social rights that people have should be protected in, in just regular laws that the parliament sets. So, yeah, that's been a huge debate in Iceland, which sees no end at the moment. I mean, debates are always good. So, you know, the longer they go on, I guess, the better for society. Um, when things stop being debatable, I'm pretty <laughs> sure that there is something weird there going on. I'm wondering if there is a way to think of good constitutions and bad constitutions. Does that make sense at all? Can we say a constitution is good, a constitution is not that good? I don't know. At the top of my head, I think it's very difficult to determine whether a constitution is bad or good. And I think in terms of actions that government take, um, we've seen examples like Valkyrie was pointing out that some Soviet Union countries had very extensive chapters on human rights, and then they would, you know, arguably breach those human rights. So of course, like with any document, it is the enforceability, I think, of the principles that are in it that really determine if it is good or bad. But I think that it's necessary to have a document that limits the power of government to pass laws that breach fundamental human rights. And the reason why I think this is necessary is so that there's also a continuity of these rights being protected, regardless of different political powers um, taking over. So there, there are some fundamental societal aspects that should be safeguarded. And then policies and laws, they can shape... And, and change as society is evolving, but fundamental rights need to be protected. Is that part of the controversy in Iceland currently? I have read a bit about this, mm -hmm. that there has been a, a draft for no constitution after the, the financial crisis, but this never actually came into force. But then... Yeah, I'll tell you a brief history, and I won't... I mean, I'll tell you a lot, but I won't 
go into all the details. I mean, it's a really long story. So following the economic crisis that, of course, hit worldwide, but was really um, prominent here in Iceland in 2008. So after that, I don't know if you heard about the pots and pan revolution, which took place here in Iceland. So, you know, people were really... Um, they didn't trust politicians. They wanted to have more say in policymaking in general. So um, there was this kind of a lot of public debate around the Constitution. Okay, how could this have happened? You know, shouldn't the Constitution protect us? Something like this. This was the debate. So for the first time in many, many years, there was a left-wing government that took office after the economic crisis. They wanted to do a lot. And one of their projects was to put forward some reform on the constitution. They wanted to bring citizens into this process. So they established a layered process of different kinds of forums for citizens to participate. The first one was like a national forum, which took place in the biggest sports stadium in Iceland with like a thousand people that were randomly selected to come. But that was more of like a roundtable meetings, not very structured. You know, what what are the values that we want the Icelandic society to be based on? And nothing really, I mean, what came out of it were some words that should guide um, some constitutional changes. But that was really like you know, not very um, organized or had any political significance. Um, after that, the government decided to um, initiate this constitutional council where everyone, all regular citizens in Iceland were able to run for office. So I think around 520 actually ran for office. It was personal elections and 25 were voted in. And as you might kind of wonder, 500 people trying to get your attention, the people that were voted in, most of them were already known in society, you know, scholars, activists, lawyers, all kinds of people. Um, yeah, so it was not like a, a randomly selected group of people that represents the whole nation. Anyways, they were supposed to um, propose some constitutional changes. However, soon they said, we want to write a new constitution. And that's what they did. In three months, they wrote a, a totally new constitution, which was then presented to the parliament in 2011. After that, um, the draft bill went into the committee system in the parliament. But in um, 2012, the government wanted kind of more legitimacy um, and to find out whether the proposals actually had some public support. So they held a referendum, which included some questions on the content of the constitutional draft. But the main question asked, do you want the constitution of Iceland to be based on the constitutional council's draft? 74% uh, of the those who participated said yes. However, the turnout was like 48, 9%, which is very low in Iceland. I mean, usually in parliamentary elections, we have around 80%. We have a really high turnout in every election. So that has been criticized, but um, the support was overwhelming. However, the year after that, in 2013, it was a change of government, parliamentary elections, and uh, two parties 
um, established a coalition government, right-wing parties, which were quite against such substantial changes to the constitution. They wanted incremental and slow, so they were not really fond of a whole new constitution. So, you know, this case kind of was in and out of parliament, in some committees, and nothing really happened in the political atmosphere. You know, there was a huge debate around it in society, but nothing really happened there because there was no political will. And then this current government decided to kind of pick this up again. The leader of the current government is from a left-wing party, but however, she's working across the spectrum with two other parties that are like um, kind of right-wing or in the middle. So she had to find a way to do this kind of all over again. So in 2019, the current government initiated a deliberative poll on the constitution. Have you heard of that? No. No, I mean, I hadn't before I started my PhD. But it's a methodology to engage uh, citizens in policymaking. And it's similar to citizens' assemblies, like the ones that have taken place in Ireland over the last years. However, it's um, one-off. It's only on in one weekend. And it's a randomly selected group of people, which is supposed to represent the rest of the nation. And they deliberate on roundtables and they listen to experts on six different topics in the constitution that the government decides on what they're supposed to talk about. So people are polled on their opinions in the beginning of the meeting. And then after two days, they're polled again. And then you see if they change their minds after deliberation with equals, but also listening to experts. So that was in 2019. After that, um, there was a lot of debate in, in the parliament and, and, you know, what should we do? How should we work with the results? And, um, now we are in the process of the prime minister herself has put forward a draft bill in the parliament, which is like loosely based on the results from this deliberative poll. But it's really, there's some cherry picking going on there. You know, what suits her agenda? Of course, you know, she picks up some topics and leaves others out because this is a really controversial issue in the parliament as well among the party leaders and the parties so it's really difficult to find some solution however this is now just in the committee process in the parliament and this was really criticized among the supporters of the constitutional council's draft because the process of 2010 to 12 it was um so it was a really cool process what they did i mean the constitutional council um used crowdsourcing methods they put all their proposals on facebook and everyone was allowed to comment however um this has been criticized as well mainly of the representativeness of the group and then the some minor other issues that are not really interesting but this process had a lot of supporters so this has been really debated over the last 10 years and we still kind of see no end to it that's very interesting because i was reading before our recording uh, a bit about that and i also found an article by i think one of the main proponents of the new constitution or of a new constitution of the process in of 2011 and 12 and he he had kind of like pointed out some some things that he thinks should be done differently in the new constitution which are one hot issue seems to be the unequal weight of of votes so it seems to be like in in iceland that some regions are 
kind of like are overrepresented. It's a bit similar like in the US, you know, you have like this uh, countryside urban split. Uh, you have uh, the whole issue of fishery and how to kind of like deal with like natural resources and also transparency seems to be one issue yes and, and i was thinking well yeah nice but why not i mean why not solving these issues like with normal laws i mean and if people really care about that then they could just like vote in uh, mm -hmm. let's say super left government and this government then just drafts mm -hmm. laws and then we get rid of the problem of intransparency or do you think yes. it should be part of a constitution and if so why in yeah. a constitution not just like in a in a law regular laws exactly and this is the exact controversy that's like in the debate in Iceland like a lot of people are saying like there's nothing stopping you from just putting forward these laws that will provide these things that you're talking about that need to be in the constitution I really don't have an opinion on that I really kind of don't believe that it needs to be in the constitution um, I think it's it it can definitely just be put in the in the laws, but up until now there has been no political will to do that. And exactly, these people are saying, okay, why don't you guys just, if you care so much, just vote in the parties that will change the laws? But this is exactly what the right wing parties that, and as you might know, in Iceland the spectrum is quite small. They're not so right wing, even though I say they're right wing, you know. Um, anyways, but um, they are saying, come on, if all of you loved the new constitution and the process so much, why did you vote in these parties in government right after the referendum? You know, that's a statement. So that's what they're saying. And I forgot to mention before that, um, so like regarding the content of the um, new constitution. So like when this uh, draft bill was in the committees of the parliament back in 2012, something like that. There was a lot of criticism among experts, lawyers, law professors, the Venice um, committee of the European Council or something, can't remember. Um, so they were quite critical of the content, you know, these articles won't stand for, you know, it's going to create confusion. They're not really thought through. You have to change so many of them. So this is, this kind of, um, delegitimized the whole, you know, not the whole process, but the, the content actually. And that's what people felt. And this really influenced the debate in the parliament. A lot of MPs were not able to kind of stand with this and support the new constitution because they were like, wait a minute. All of the experts are saying, the text isn't good enough. What should we do? So yeah, that that was kind of one of the reasons why it didn't really, you know, end up going up for a vote in the parliament. It's a complex issue. <laughs> to me, one of the things that this story tells is it's very difficult to strike a balance between trying to get your citizens involved in something as important as drafting a constitution and actually getting it done. Exactly. And this is a really good question and is kind of the recent main research question in academia around citizen participation. Before it was quite normative. Oh, you know, citizens are well able to um, deliberate and come to a good conclusion, which lead to better policies, better democracy, more trust in politics. All of these statements were kind of, you know, a few years ago, uh, really prominent in the uh, literature. However, now, you know, scholars are saying, look, 
Okay, amazing forums all around the world. It, you know, there are deliberative forums in, like I said, Ireland, Canada, Belgium, Germany, France, a lot of places. But then what message does this send to the citizens when the results are not translated into policies at all? And so it's like, could this lead to a more distrust, you know, if, if there's no connection to the political elite and this is what I wanted to to kind of find out. And that's why I've been over the last few months interviewing the leaders of the political parties here in Iceland and asking them, you know, like, what do you actually think about citizen participation? Should they be more involved or not? How should you, you know, use the results of these deliberative forums? And some of them are just saying, yeah, it's really nice. It's really nice. However, there needs to be a politician who is held accountable. And there's just politics and we have our policies. And if they go against what the public is saying, then I'm in trouble. This makes me think, uh, um, however, is this about the destination or is it also about the journey? Exactly. That's a good point as well. I mean, I don't think every country has the luxury of trying to get their citizens involved. And I'm I'm also thinking whether, I mean, the final product, whenever it's actually there on the table, um, if it's going to be a lot better because of this massive effort that you've been doing for the past 10 mm-hmm. years mm-hmm. to try to get all citizens to have their say there. Uh, maybe if you were to do it in a small committee in the parliament, you were to vote it and then put it in place, of course it would be there. Um, but then you wouldn't have all this input, right? Yeah, now it seems exactly. to me that whatever the final result will be, mm-hmm. it's going to have this mix of opinions, exactly. right? Uh, for better or for worse. And I True. think part of a democracy is having this process that is painful, that is slow, that doesn't necessarily mean at the end that everyone is going to get or be pleased, mm-hmm. but at least everyone was heard. So in yeah. that sense, it's it feels good. Um, exactly. One thing that I, I was curious to ask, and this is related to the question Alex made before, is at the same time, for the past 10 years, Iceland has kept on functioning, right? <laughs> so this constitution um, or this new constitution that is a result of a crisis has not necessarily plunged Iceland into another crisis. Exactly. <laughs> so this begs the question... How important is it actually to have a constitution? Very good point. And this is what one of the party leaders said to me, like, aren't we doing very well today? Didn't we deal with the crisis really well? We didn't really need the constitution, right? <laughs> so this is also, yeah, it's a good question that I don't have an answer to, but it's it's out there, <laughs> believe me, <laughs> here in Iceland. Like, okay, everything seems to be working out fine. And Yeah, I, I was going to say, I mean, in Mexico, I don't want to say that things don't work well in Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we do a lot of things right. We do a lot of things wrong. And there is big room for improvement. But we have a beautiful constitution. <laughs> I look at it and it doesn't only look nice, but it's also meaningful. It's deep. Uh, you read through the articles from when it was established in 1917. It hasn't changed much since then. I mean, it has. I mean, I hope that any Mexican listening <laughs> to me doesn't take this for, you know, at face value. It has changed, but it hasn't been, you, you know, we don't have a new constitution since 1917. Oh, wow. It's over a hundred years old. And it's very, it's not easy to change. And it doesn't necessarily mean that because you have that old constitution that back in the days made sense, that it necessarily makes sense today. Are people happy with it in Mexico? That's a great question. It's not a debate, maybe. I I don't think it's a debate. I think um, 
I mean, among scholars, it is, of course. Among politicians, it also is, whether our constitution is good uh, or is fit for purpose or not. Mm -hmm. But I don't think the average citizen questions whether our constitution is good or not. I think, to begin with, there isn't a good understanding of what our constitution should be for. Mm -hmm. And then, why should we depend on one single document <laughs> to fix our problems? The way I see it is it's a good reference, right? It should be the backbone of things, but then there is a whole body of laws, policies that should make sure that whatever it is good for society is implemented in the best possible way. We cannot really depend on a couple hundred pages to make sure that our society functions correctly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you see that in the UK. I mean, they don't even have a, a proper constitution. Mm -hmm. And still, it's a country that basically was one of or the first country that actually had human rights and it's one of the oldest democracies and still functions quite well so in the end i think the discussion about constitution whether it's necessary yeah i mean it, it probably it, it doesn't harm if you have one and probably it's good if you have a good one but just because you have a good constitution doesn't mean you will have a well-functioning i don't even say democracy but a well-functioning country yeah. i mean you I, I, probably North Korea probably has a nice constitution. I don't know what they have. Actually, I didn't mm -hmm. research that. But And still, it's one of the worst dictatorships we have in the world. Exactly. And yeah, um, in Iceland, it's also, I feel like it's a part of this kind of independence debate, right? Mm -hmm. Iceland was under Denmark until 1944. And the constitution we kind of got it from Denmark. So it was not written by Icelanders at that time. So now people are saying, oh, we have a constitution that was written by like Danish men back in the 1944. And, and we, you know, as a sovereign country, we need to kind of um, make changes to it so it fits better. I mean, that has been done, of course. I mean, Icelandic uh, constitution has been amended like seven times or something like that. But I feel like this comes up a lot. Mm -hmm. And it's a part of our identity. Yeah. And also just, you know, it's it's not really our constitution. And I remember when I was, you know, just in school as a kid, it was always like, oh, yeah, this is the old Danish constitution that we inherited from the king. Iceland doesn't have a constitution. The Icelandic nation never really yeah. made their own. Yeah. So and I feel like this sort of has lingered on. Mm -hmm. uh, And then also in terms of, because we've been debating a lot, you know, do constitutions matter, yes or no? I, I would like to argue, I mean, I know that their impact is quite limited. And the reason why I was, um, you know, interested in this topic is because I feel like they're totally underrated because, you know, there's not a lot of awareness about constitutions. You don't really feel it so much in your daily life. But that also depends a lot on what is actually written in the constitution. And Alex was making the point earlier, like, being bored with me because I was mentioning the length and okay I agree size does not really matter it's the content that matters and if you look at this old Icelandic constitution Icelandic in uh, quotation marks um, mm -hmm. it's quite interesting that the first uh, like 30 articles out of 80 are about the president yes which actually doesn't do much in society he's more of a symbolic figurehead exactly. so we have a short constitution relatively short constitution and you know nearly half of it is about this a guy or a woman of mm. course uh, but that doesn't really hold much power in society and when you look at the new constitution mm -hmm. this has completely been flipped around you 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 start more with the fundamental 
you know, principles and values of the country, and you put some limits on what type of laws, you know, the government can pass or cannot pass, you know, what are the fundamental values that have to be protected. And the, the, part about the Icelandic president that's reduced to a few articles that mm-hmm. comes towards the end of the constitution because mm-hmm. that's it's more of a side note mm-hmm. so just this I think goes to show that it does sort of set the tone for what are the societal values and the symbolism of it you know we're talking about the process versus the content just living in a society where you feel like the people have determined these are the values that we want to hold dear and no government left or right or whatever can breach them I think exactly. symbolism matters. And this is why I think that the new constitution, you know, if it were ratified, would be quite symbolic. Also, because it has clauses about, you know, environmental protection. Mm-hmm. And the citizens have the right to, you know, have the, you know, constitutional right to know what is the environmental impact of things that are happening in the country. And there's even a clause about, you know, animal welfare, which I find, you know, very interesting. I think that. Of course, then you can enter a debate, you know, does this matter? You know, of course, fundamentally, if we just have laws that protect the environment and it's working, then fundamentally it doesn't change. But mm-hmm. I think for us as a, as a nation, and especially after the economic crisis where we felt so betrayed by our government that this could, you know, have some healing power in it. I know it sounds very hippie and all that, but I do have a, a soft spot for constitutions that... I uh, hear that now, Harpa. Sorry? <laughs> I hear that now, Harpa. I didn't yeah. know. <laughs> I think you just made a very nice point for constitution because I just wanted to push back and say, oh, maybe it's more the culture that matters, you know. So what does it help you if you have a nice constitution, but the culture doesn't up- uplift to it? And mm-hmm. I think Iceland is also maybe a good example of a very progressive country, mm-hmm. despite you having half of your constitution wasted, so to say, on the president. You're still one of the most progressive countries. So isn't that a nice example that in the end it doesn't it doesn't really matter? But I think you also made a nice point that once society and constitution fall out of sync, so to say, then there there might be some some lingering what you said. And uh, just a little side note, also we have the same debate in Germany. I mean, uh, when our when when East and West Germany unified in 1990, there was or in 89, and then not in 90, then unified in 89, the the war came down. There was there was a discussion: should we have a new constitution? And what happened in the end is no. The the East German, the former uh, GDR, just joined the 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 West German West Germany, and took over the constitution. So the constitution stayed the same and was just maybe amended. Now Germany also mm-hmm. encompasses the, these five more states, and that's it. And guess what? Now we have a debate in Germany, especially in the East German states, that there is missing identity, that West Germany took over Eastern Germany. And again, you know, a bit like similar to what you have with the Danish constitution, that there's a the feeling of not being part of that document, so to say, or not being represented because it was not drafted by 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 its own people although of course in western germany i mean this was also the the, the west german constitution is from 1948 and and for 49 and also was never drafted by any kind of like normal german citizen but still you know there was probably still more a feeling of like belonging that's really interesting are the is the german government actually like uh responding to these uh claims by people in living in east germany former I wouldn't say much to the constitutional matters. I I think okay. that's too big of a of a fish to fry, so to say. Mm-hmm. I think they're trying to uh, to alleviate like any any criticism or any problems in Eastern Germany when it's come to cultural identity. They're trying to to do that. Oh, we'll we, we'll we'll 
let's do good policy and let's kind of like improve people's lives and send money and that. But there is currently not a fundamental political movement or a substantial political movement that would like to uh, make a new constitution for, constitution for Germany. Although, second fun fact, the German constitution, which is not called constitution, was never meant to be there for 50, 60, 70, now it's uh, 75 years old. Uh, anyway, it doesn't matter. So it's already old enough and it's called only basic law you know because it was only drafted to be like there for okay. a couple of years and then the unification would happen much earlier and this the unification never happened you know it only happened like after 40 years um yeah so we still have our basic law or it's called fundamental law basic law and not a constitution and it's still there and now it's of course a constitution like any, any other constitution we have in 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 other countries But yeah, for people from East Germany, they feel like, ah, oh, yeah, it's the West yeah. German constitution we are now kind of like also adhering to. Uh, yeah, it might be a great constitution. It is also a great constitution, but still uh, we were just kind of like put into the, the same thing and not actually, we didn't have a say on that, you know. And I want to quickly jump in. Um, you mentioned just now uh, this feeling of belonging and how constitutions can actually be full of symbolism and help a nation and its citizens feel part of of a bigger whole. And this makes me question whether a constitution could be something useful for the European Union. We know there isn't one, and yet the European Union tries to bring together people from 27 different countries, countries that have different needs, they have different laws, and they have most likely a different vision of the future, and they're trying to work together. The European Union doesn't really have one constitution, but rather a bunch of treaties that are somehow integrated and tied to one another. So is this something that we should be thinking about? Well, should the EU have a constitution, yes or no, that is uh, up for debate. But I think it's a very in interesting question to also take a look at in sort of the historical context of how the EU came to be. So... Um, I was looking into this topic a little bit and, and thinking about it last night when uh, I should have been, you know, having a social life or watching a movie. I was contemplating uh, why the EU does not have a constitution and going a bit back in history to see sort of what the discussion was like um, at the time. So if I can give you a very simplistic overview, of course, we know World War II, you know, there's a need for um, European countries to come together and find a way to ensure, you know, peace moving forward. You have, you know, steel and coal coalition, whatever, um, Treaty of Rome in 1957, um, and then the single European Act in 1987, which sort of starts to formulate this uh, European community, soon to be union. Um Of course, this has always been a topic for political debate, but I think in general, because it was more of an economic cooperation and more of a international project to ensure peace, um, there was not a lot of controversy about these things, Not nothing compared to where we find ourselves in the EU today. Uh, because when you take a look at what happened in 1992, that's when you have the Maastricht Treaty, and you start to see articles in, a, in the treaty that go beyond just pure economic uh, cooperation, and you start to see more of a political uh, things being entered into the treaty, like aspects on citizenship, um, uh, aspects on common foreign policy, et cetera, et cetera. And this is where you start to see some, you know, pushback, uh, because of course, the Maastricht Treaty was uh, rejected in uh, at least two referendums at the time. So you can start to see 
uh, more pushback from the citizens uh, towards this concept that was laid forth in the Rome Treaty of an ever closer union, like you should work together ever closer. And um, you sort of had these two camps throughout history, the European Federalists and those that were more, you know, just focusing on the free market. Um, this narrative of the European Federalists starts to sort of uh, come to the surface more, more clearly. Um, so essentially then we have, you know, the treaty is ultimately ratified, but then uh, we enter the sort of the the big one. We have then the Treaty of Amsterdam. You have the Treaty of Nice. Sort of things. The treaties are growing. They're sort of you know expanding a bit there, and the union is taking shape. But then what happens is that these European Federalists and these ideas of an ever closer union. They say in the Lacking Convention of 2001, look, haven't we reached the point where the EU needs a constitution? Um, and the purpose of the EU constitution stated at the time was that um, there should be a convention to address, number one, what is the fundamental role of the EU? Number two, um, how do we speak with one voice in international affairs? Number three, how do the member states in the EU share responsibility? Um, and then they wanted to simplify community legislation. And essentially, they wanted to have a single, simple piece of document, you know, that sort of any citizen could read, understand, you know, and keep in their back pocket. So you start to enter into these questions of political identity and, you know, and your identity as an EU citizen versus a citizen of your uh, national country, essentially. So kind of what happened, uh, there is this Lacken Declaration. Um, in 2002, they have the Lacken Convention, uh, where you have commission representatives, European parliamentarians, and representatives of the governments meeting together to start to debate these questions. And it's very interesting that at the time, some people were comparing this to the Philadelphia Convention, which is the mm. where the U.S. Constitution was drawn. So you start to see this comparison between the United States and a United States of Europe, which is where uh -oh, people start red to red flags for some. I mean, you have different uh, schools of thought on this. Um, and there was the, the former French president... Uh, Valérie Giscard d'Estaing. It's the most difficult last name ever among French presidents. I completely butchered it. Uh, but he was the, the guy who was chairing this convention. And he, at the time, compared himself to Thomas Jefferson. He called himself the European Thomas oh, no. Jefferson. So you can start to see... Yeah, that's, that's why it didn't work out. I didn't know this fun fact. Now it all makes sense. Mm-hmm. Because also, I mean, talk about the importance of process. You already have the European citizens thinking that there's this supranational identity that is maybe taking away their, you know, sovereignty in some way. And now there's a constitution. And again, it's not a process that the citizens were highly engaged in. It's these Eurocrats and politicians meeting somewhere, debating some questions. And then in 2003, we have the draft constitution. And then the, in 2004, the 25 heads of the member states, they meet together and they're like, yeah, yeah, we'll sign this. Perfect. Fine. Voila. We have an EU constitution. But then, of course, it has to be ratified by the member states. Um, and usually, 
you know, EU law is just, you know, ratified through the parliaments. But in this case, they said this is such a fundamental thing that we have to put it uh, up for a referendum in, in the countries. And it was approved in 18 member states, but several of them rejected the constitution. And the notion at the time was that, you know, it was just a step too far. Now, the interesting thing is what happened is that then they sort of took a step back and they say, okay, we'll go to the, to the old process. Okay, there will be a treaty, an amendable treaty, and voila, we'll do it like that. 80% or 90% of the content of the substance of this EU constitution kind of made it into the Lisbon Treaty, which was then ratified. But it was okay because, you know, it was just another treaty. So symbolism and process does matter. That's true. Although also the last Lisbon Treaty had some some issues. I think Ireland had to go vote twice. And and some other countries, some other countries don't even go to vote at all. They just pass it to yeah, the parliament yeah. and the parliament says fine and, you know, that's it. There is one important thing that was in the constitution that is not in the Lisbon Treaty. So they are similar, these documents in terms of content, but they have some fundamental differences. Number one, It's not called a constitution. So you get rid of the sort of questions that surround that. And then the EU constitution, it had in it um, what was the anthem and the flag and the currency and then Europe Day as sort of the national, uh, like the, the holiday, etc. And it starts to maybe move too close into the territory of a United States of Europe and us being one people. And I think that this is why, even though it, there was a struggle, why the Lisbon Treaty ultimately was ratified. But this EU constitution, it, uh, it died in 2005. Uh, parts of it lived on in the Lisbon Treaty, but to this day, there is no single EU constitution. Doesn't uh, the Lisbon Treaty, or uh, sorry, doesn't the current European treaties also say that there is a European anthem, which is the melody of the Beethoven Symphony, and there is the official flag? This is true. We do have an anthem and a flag, but it's not enshrined in a document that's called the Constitution. I think this is the thing. I mean, you, you choose like a branding for the EU, but it's still, I mean... It doesn't, it doesn't make a lot of sense that this would have been an issue because essentially these are things that still exist. We still celebrate Europe Day, you know, on the day of the Schumann Declaration or whatever. Well, yeah. No. Sorry. <laughs> I think only the people working in the European Parliament and Council do it and in the Commission because they get a day off. I think no one else <laughs> in Europe, at least no one of my friends in here in Germany know about Europe Day. Uh, okay. Which is very sad. Point, point taken. But I think I think in so, in some countries it does make sense. I believe in Luxembourg it's also a national holiday. It's not in Belgium, for instance, uh, funnily enough. So uh, that's one of those weird days when on the streets you only see people actually working outside of the EU bubble because everyone else is at home chilling, you know, all the Eurocrats, uh, all the parliamentarians. Um, but this, this is a fascinating story, Harpa. I am glad that you wasted your Friday, I mean, quote-unquote, wasted for, for this because it, <laughs> it was awesome. it's a fascinating story that you managed to condense into, you know, a couple of minutes. So in a nutshell, this is the story of why the EU does not have a constitution and why it might be very hard to ever have one. One yeah. thing that I find amazing is that it was... Um, France, one of the two member states where uh, this constitution for Europe was not ratified by the referendum, right? But it's just funny that the country of the person who claimed to be 
Thomas Jefferson did not ratify the Constitution. Um, the other one, if I'm not mistaken, was the Netherlands, where the Maastricht Treaty was signed. So it's interesting to see, you know, this pushback uh, from uh, fr- from mm-hmm. these two countries, core countries, from the founding members yep. of the European of the European communities yep. back then. Yeah. I wanted to bring bring up one thing though. From uh, my own research, um, I understood that one of the things that the this constitution wanted to address was the fact that there was no document that was reflecting the the charter of fundamental rights of the European mm-hmm. Union. And the idea was to enshrine those in this constitution for Europe. Um, however, they were recuperated in the Lisbon mm-hmm. Treaty, um, which I think was a very positive consequence because otherwise all these fundamental human rights that today Europeans have as not only citizens of their uh, home country, but also as citizens of a union are in a legal document. Yeah. Actually, an interesting point that I wanted to make is that uh, when I took a look at very quickly the Lisbon Treaty, they do have um, a fundamental value about the protection and ownership of your digital self or your data or something like that, which is very, you know, futuristic because now we're entering an age where we have to ask ourselves these fundamental questions. I mean, for everyone, it's super clear that the government cannot burst into your house and, you know, take a look at uh, your stuff and stuff like that. This is enshrined in constitutions, you know, the right to your, you know, privacy, etc. But then I think that there are so many fundamental changes happening in society that, it, uh, you know, with climate change and then with, you know, the fourth uh, industrial revolution, whatever, that it might be worth uh, taking a look at some of these aspects and thinking, should we enshrine it in a constitution? And then I thought, okay, so maybe even the new constitution is already outdated because society is changing so fast. But then I thought Iceland is a member of the European economic area and there's a European court of justice. So if the Icelandic government, you know, fucks up and does something wrong with our data or misuses the data of its citizens, then we could just take them to court because of Lisbon Treaty. So there's a very interesting uh, connection between... um, the EU and its member states and also, you know, the, the EEA after countries, because there is this principle of their laws becoming automatically, you know, our laws in these areas where we have, um, economic, you know, the single market, et cetera. Hmm. Uh, I don't think a lot of citizens actually realize this or think about it too, too much because even if this we would have had the EU constitution, it wouldn't have fundamentally changed the, the role of the EU how it, you know, impacts your daily life. So it was just the symbolism, I think, that was the downfall of the EU constitution. So I think, and also the process, I think, because thinking about the Icelandic process, you know, there's so much support for the Icelandic constitution, you know, among the citizens, I think. Uh, but it's also primarily because, in my view, but Valkyr probably has other theories, but I think knowing that we went through this process. This was something that was truly drafted by the people and the people of the country were involved in it. It's not some technocrats and politicians that came up with this stuff. This came directly from the hearts and minds of the people. Automatically, we're like, yes, we can support this. So when you think about journey versus outcome, you somebody posed that question. I think it was you, Victor. I think this is also a very good example. Essentially, maybe the outcome is the same, you know, de facto, but the journey was flawed and the symbolism was too much and that's why we don't have an eu constitution (laughs) only a de facto one through the lisbon treaty that's a very interesting reflection it was somehow used as a means to an end and 
One of the things that um, also struck me was uh, reading, not reading, but skimming through the Parliament's uh, reaction to the Constitution back in 2004. And one of the things that parliamentarians at the EU level were uh, saying back then was that this new Constitution for Europe was very much welcome because it would provide citizens with more clarity as to the union's nature and objectives and as to the relations between the union and the member states. I mean, I cannot, you know, uh, understate how important I personally think this is. This is probably one of the most boring aspects of having a constitution because, of course, you will have to read through it to understand what it means. But it's true that nowadays it's very complex for any given citizen in the EU to comprehend how the European Union works. That's, um, to an extent, what this podcast is trying to do, to unravel, to untangle the complexity of these relationships, you know, between the different institutions that make up the EU, national governments, and then the regular citizen who, at the end of the day, is at the receiving end of any policy or program that is implemented at the EU level. So I think that that single document, to an extent, would have simplified this potpourri of laws, regulations, directives that the European Union is putting out there and probably make them a bit more accessible to the average citizen. For me, I think that's a very nice conclusion because it's uh, ultimately we're saying, you know, constitutions, whatever you think about them, they certainly do matter. I think we can drop the mic there. Boom, that was the mic drop. (laughs) (laughs) if you like the content of this episode make sure you hit the subscribe button if you enjoy listening to eu untangled the best way to help it grow bigger better and greater is by sharing it with your friends and leaving us a review on itunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts For constant updates, you can also follow EU Untangled on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And make sure you check out our awesome website, podworld.org slash untangled. You'll find tons of interesting information in the show notes and a lot of cool links. See you next time. Before logging off, it's time for some fact-checking. We said a lot of things during this episode, and we're not 100% sure of all of them. So here we go. At some point during the episode, Alex mentioned that North Korea probably has a constitution. The answer is yes. The current constitution of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea dates back to 1972. It replaces the country's first constitution, which was approved in 1948. The most recently amended version counts 11 chapters and 172 articles. North Korea is also governed by the 10 principles for the establishment of a monolithic ideological system. These principles were first proposed in 1967 and have been rewritten several times by the ruling Kim family. They establish standards for governance and guide the behavior of North Koreans. The principles must be memorized by every citizen and are meant to ensure their loyalty to their supreme leader. Some people claim that these principles have come to supersede the constitution, serving in practice as the supreme law of the country. At some other point in the episode, Alex talks about the German constitution, also known as basic law. He gives us the ballpark figure of the constitution being 75 years old. The current version of the Constitution of the Federal Republic of Germany, also known as Basic Law, was adopted on the 23rd of May 1949. 
This means that at the moment of recording this episode, Germany's basic law is 71 years old. This also means that even PhD economists can benefit from having a calculator at hand, which, truth be told, is a relief for the rest of us mere mortals. The name basic law was intended to express the provisional nature of the document, but it contains all the features of a constitution and it has functioned as such for many decades. After the unification of Germany in 1990, this basic law became the constitution for the whole of Germany. Later on, Victor would go on to claim that Valerie Giscard d'Estaing is the most difficult name in the world to pronounce. So I decided to fact check myself and consult the internet on this. According to the website stuff.co.nz, Celtic culture has a lot to answer for, since they have given us names that we, quote-unquote, simply cannot pronounce, not for love, nor money. I can't say I disagree, and my Irish friends can certainly testify to how much I struggle getting their names right. The top examples that this website gives include Kien, Tig, Niamh, Sirsha, and Siobhan. I know what you must be saying right now. Hold on, Vic. These names sound perfectly normal to me. Yeah, to your ears, but not to your eyes. Spelling does not match their sound. Of course, none of this sounds quite scientific to me, to be honest. What words or names you find difficult to pronounce is surely tied to your native tongue. One thing that certainly complicates things is the length of a name. So I decided to turn to the Guinness World Records. It turns out that the longest personal name belongs to a German the late Hubert Plain Wolf Schleckelstein Hausenbergerdorf. And that is a short version of his name. Hubert's name in full is 747 characters long. And if you're curious to learn the rest of his names, you can click on the relevant link in the show notes. To get back to President Valéry Giscard d'Estaing, here is the correct pronunciation by a native French speaker. Valéry Giscard d'Estaing. We also said that the Constitution for Europe mentioned the symbols of the European Union, such as the anthem, the flag, the currency, when Europe Day should be observed. And Alex questioned whether those symbols were included in current EU treaties. Harpa replied by saying that even though we have an anthem, it is not enshrined in a document called the Constitution. Well, there is a few things to unpack there. On the one hand, it is true that the Constitution for Europe specified what the symbols of the Union would be, namely the flag of the Union, this circle of 12 golden stars on a blue background that we know well, the anthem of the Union, based on the Ode to Joy from the Ninth Symphony by Ludwig van Beethoven, the motto of the Union, which is united in diversity, the currency of the Union, the Euro, and Europe Day, which shall be celebrated on the 9th of May throughout the whole European Union. It is also true that following the downfall of the Constitution for Europe in 2005, none of these symbols were included in the Treaty of Lisbon, signed in 2007. Even though none of these symbols have a legal basis, they are used as the de facto symbols of the European Union. It is worth noting that 16 member states signed a declaration that was included as an annex to the Treaty of Lisbon, whereby they state that the flag with the circle of 12 golden stars, the anthem based on the ode to joy, the motto united in diversity, the euro as the currency of the EU, and Europe Day will for them continue as symbols to express the sense of community of the people in the European Union and their allegiance to it. The signatories do not include France or the Netherlands. 
Now, closely related to this, uh, we discussed whether Europe Day is celebrated on the day of the Schumann Declaration and which countries actually celebrate it. Alex mentioned that only the people working in the EU institutions celebrate that day, mainly because they get the day off. I said that, at least in Luxembourg, it is a national holiday, but not in Belgium. It is true that Europe Day is celebrated on the 9th of May each year. This date marks the anniversary of the Schumann Declaration, presented in 1950 by Robert Schumann, then the French foreign minister. In it, he proposed the creation of a European coal and steel community, today the EU. Europe Day celebrates peace and unity. According to Wikipedia, it is a public holiday only in Luxembourg. Of course, this doesn't mean that people celebrate it or not. But one thing is for sure. What better way of celebrating peace and unity than carrying on with your normal life and duties? Anyway, enough fact-checking for now. For those of you tuning in in May, happy Europe Day. <laughs>